Hello, this is Father John Arnold, and this is Oral Valley Catholic. Cult of the Dead, A Brief History of Christianity by Kyle Smith. I was reading not the book, but a review of the book. But the idea of the book is simply this, that Christianity is a cult of the dead. Well, I mean, think about it. Our central story is about the passion and the death of Jesus Christ. And even in the New Testament, starting with the Acts of the Apostles and the martyrdom of St. Stephen, the great heroes of early Christianity are all of those who are martyred in, in awful ways by the Roman Empire. And martyrdom continues on to the very present um, in, in the Middle East especially, uh, but also uh, elsewhere in the world. Uh, and for us, we see the giving your life for love of God and testimony to the power of Christ is the greatest witness that a Christian can give because it emulates the Lord giving his life uh, for, for others. And instead of, as in Second Maccabees, shaking your fist at your persecutors, Jesus shows the loving face of God. That's why this week, of this part of the season of Lent, we've been conducting a novena to the holy face of Jesus because uh, he is the suffering servant. He is the one that dies on the cross. And so this week on Oro Valley Catholic, we're going to pay special attention uh, to uh, the gospel of the passion and the death of Jesus Christ. We're going to talk about the suffering servant and other issues that come up in, this, in the story of the passion and how it brings together all of these threads from the past into this one story of how it is that we are saved. And you know, that story keeps inspiring Christians uh, to the present. Is Christianity a cult to the dead? Uh, no, but when we hold up the Eucharist at Mass, remember, it's body and blood separated, and that is a sign of death. But we believe is that death is the doorway to new life. And in participating in the Eucharist, we participate in eternal life that we live even now in this mortal world full of suffering. We live the power of the cross and the resurrection. And so why do we believe that? It's because of what happens in Holy Week. It's why it is the center part, really, of the whole Christian liturgical year. So let's turn to Palm Sunday Mass, what happens at Mass and why, and the story of the Paschal Mystery. The story of the Paschal Mystery starts with something unusual at Mass on Palm Sunday. To remember that everybody is given a palm and they welcome the celebrant uh, who will be presiding at Mass and the, the mystery of the Eucharist and of the scriptures and the reflection given on the scriptures and the homily. But it starts differently than any other Mass at any time of the year because while the celebrant is standing at the entrance to the church, he reads from the gospel on this, the cycle A of our liturgical celebrations. Uh, he reads from Matthew 21. And here's the gospel he reads. When Jesus and the disciples drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village opposite you and immediately you will find an ass tethered and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them here to me. And if anyone should say anything to you, reply, 
The master has need of them. Then he will send them at once. This happens so that when what had been spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. Say to daughter Zion, behold, your king comes to you, meek and riding on an ass, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. It's not just simply the Old Testament talks about uh, Jesus coming, but it specifically refers back to Psalm 118 because the Messiah is shot through the Old Testament. You can't understand the New Testament except in reference to the Old. And so Psalm 118 verses 26 to 28 says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God and has enlightened us. Join in procession with leafy branches up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, I give you thanks. My God, I offer you praise. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His mercy endures forever. And so you remember that Jesus enters into Jerusalem to the acclaim of the crowds. And one of the first things he does uh, in the Synoptic Gospels is he goes and he cleanses the temple. Um, and he does the same thing uh, really in the Gospel of John earlier on. But that is what he does when he, when he claims that the temple is corrupt. Uh, this is one of the many reasons why he is killed by the powers that be in Israel. But it's all prophetic. That is, it's God's voice. It's God's judgment on Israel. And you do not get very far with the sense that we are being judged. And the cross is God's judgment on us, but also is offered to us. So let's go through a few of the things about the story of Jesus' betrayal, his arrest, his trial before the Sanhedrin, his trial before the Roman procurator, his sentence of death, and his crucifixion, and show how it fulfills the Old Testament uh, and why Jesus says that the Messiah had to die this way. So here's some good ideas, some things to think about as you listen to the story of the uh, crucifixion of Jesus uh, this Palm Sunday. Uh, first, recognize that the Gospel of Matthew shows that Jesus is the new Moses leading all the people on a new exodus. Moses in the Old Testament leads people out of slavery in Egypt to the Promised Land, which was kind of problematic. They were overrun by the Babylonians. They suffered under Persians and Greeks and Assyrians. Um, and so the Promised Land came with a lot of thorns, uh, really rooted in Israel's sins. And so to understand Jesus is the new Moses, leading us out of sin and slavery to sin. And the new exodus is his coming ascension, which will bring to a close the season of Easter. But it's through Jesus' suffering and then his resurrection and ascension. This is all the Paschal mystery. And so why does it start out with, as I read in the very beginning of this segment of the podcast, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover out of Matthew 26, 17? And Jesus sends them uh, to find a man who's leading a foal through town. And this would be where they celebrate uh, the Passover supper in the, uh, in the upper room. And so why the Passover supper? Because if you remember again in the book of Exodus, it's this sacred Passover, and the Jews are, are required to keep it according to the Torah, which reminds them of their captivity in, in Egypt, 
and how it is that uh, Yahweh, the Lord God, the God I am, led them out into the, to the desert so they could worship him and in worshiping and found their way to the promised land. So Jesus's Paschal mystery also starts at the Passover meal, um, but it's a completion of the Passover meal, not to a promised land that's in this frame, in this dimension, um, but the promised land that uh, is, is heaven in the presence of God. In the story of the Exodus, God came down and dwelt amongst his people in a tent and went with them through the desert, led them by a pillar of fire at night and a pillar of smoke during the day or a cloud of smoke during the day. Um, in the new Exodus, it'll be through the crucifixion, the resurrection and the ascension. So you can see the connection of Jesus as fulfilling Moses, not simply coming from an earthly captivity to just another a place in this world where they would be enslaved again, but leading them out of slavery into a new place. This is what Jesus does and why it fulfills the story of Israel at a higher pitch. Life after death. That is, it's not a cult of the dead. It's that death has been conquered and that Jesus is the one that conquers it. So how is it that the Gospel of Matthew shows that Jesus is the new Adam? So remember this part of the story of the Paschal mystery. Do you remember after the Passover meal, they go across the Kidron Valley and they're singing psalms and they enter the Garden of Gethsemane and Gethsemane means olive press. And in that garden, the garden really is a bunch of olive trees. And according to the rabbinic literature, the place where Adam and Eve fell was under an olive tree. Because an olive tree is like the staff of life to the Mediterranean people. You can eat the fruit and it's good for nutrition. You can crush it and it's oil for cooking. And so Adam is tempted and falls in that garden. But Jesus, the new Adam, he does not fall in the garden. In fact, when he's tempted, Father, take this away from me. Uh, but he says, not, your, not my will, but your will be done. And then the soldiers show up. So here's another one. How does the Gospel of Matthew, if you're asking, portray Jesus as the prophetic suffering servant? And if you remember the very first reading from, um, from the, the uh, scriptures for Palm Sunday, the reading that the first reader will read is from Isaiah chapter 50, and here's how it is. The Lord God has given me a well-trained tongue that I might know how to speak to the weary, a word that will rouse them. Morning after morning, he opens my ear that I may hear, and I have not rebelled, have not turned my back. I gave my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who plucked my beard, my face I did not shield from buffets and spitting. The Lord God is my help, therefore I am not disgraced. I have set my face like flint, knowing that it shall not be put to shame. The suffering servant readings, the chapters in the prophet Isaiah, all foretell the nature of a Messiah that will suffer and give his life for the people. You know, in Jesus' time, the messianic hopes uh, centered around someone who would be a high priest and uh, would restore the, all the controversies over the past centuries over whether or not they had a legitimate priesthood in the temple. And you have to remember that one of the problems of Israel is uh, the priesthood is probably not the priesthood or is not the priesthood. 
that uh, is descended from Zadok. There was a lot of controversy about that. So one Messiah would uh, restore the temple. Another would kick the Romans out. He would make Israel a power to, and, uh, and would lead the people to victory. But uh, Isaiah saw it differently. He saw a Messiah that was a prophetic suffering servant. And so um, Jesus says in the Garden of Gethsemane to his disciples that the scriptures may be fulfilled and it must be so. Because Jesus, once he's arrested in the temple, he's like Isaiah 50. Um, he becomes very passive. This was the one who walked on water. This is the one who raised people from the dead. This is the one who healed the blind and the lame and the leper. Uh, this is uh, the one who has done so many great signs. But as soon as he's arrested, he simply becomes like a lamb being led to the slaughter. The Passover lamb, that's what's slaughtered. They said that uh, so many lambs were slaughtered in Passover that the water that ran out the side of the temple from the altars was blood red because they'd rinse out all the uh, blood that had to be drained out of the sacrificial victims. Because remember, kosher meat can't have blood in it because blood is life and you can't eat life. That belongs to God. And so it gets flushed out the side of the temple and into the, into the Kidron Valley, which is the very little creek that they have to walk over blood red as they go into the Garden of Gethsemane. You know, one other thing about all of that is uh, this, the olive trees and the olive press and this new Adam, but it's this idea that this new Adam suffers. Well, that was the curse on the old Adam, that he would have to make his living through thorns and thistles and death would finally claim him. And so all of those things are happening to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, but that in encountering the curse on Adam that sin brought into the world, uh, he redeems it by his fidelity because where Adam and Eve are unfaithful to God, Jesus is faithful. You know, here's another one from Isaiah 53 because there's several suffering servant songs and it says, he was spurned and avoided by men, a man of suffering, knowing pain, like one from whom you turn your face, spurned and we held him in no esteem. One of the reasons we're celebrating that novena to the, to the holy face, um, it, it was a source of devotion for Christians in previous times. And it's a great one to bring back. My favorite saint, St. Therese of Lisieux, her religious name was St. Therese of the Child Jesus and the Holy Face. Because looking into the suffering face of Jesus tells you about the love that God has for you. And this is the core of what it means to be the Messiah, according to the Gospels. So these Old Testament figures, Moses, Adam, here's another one. How is Jesus like the new Joseph? Well, you remember that uh, Jacob, uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob had 12 sons. You know, I'll remember this. They become the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. But you remember the key thing about that story is how in chapter 38, um, Judah, the, the brothers, but Judah's the one who suggests it, um, sell Joseph uh, to the Ishmaelites. It's a really interesting chapter because it says uh, in one way that the uh, Midianites sold Joseph to the Ishmaelites 
And then it suggests that the brothers sold them to the Ishmaelites. And then at the end of that chapter, it says that the Midianites sold them to the Egyptians. So you have three different stories about how Joseph is sold. What connects him, he's betrayed by his own family. And so the Judeans, Jesus is a Jew. Everybody in the story is a Jew. And they're all descendants of Jacob. And they all hand Jesus over. In the story of Genesis, it was for 20 pieces of silver. In the story that's told consistently in the New Testament, it's 30 pieces of, of silver. But it's how Jesus is like the new Joseph, uh, sold into slavery. And remember in the story of Joseph, when Joseph goes down into Egypt, he becomes the grand vizier. And it's through him that his 11 brothers and his dad and his whole family is saved because they escape a famine, famine in the promised land. They come down to Egypt and there they, they're saved by their brother Joseph who makes a place for them. Then ultimately, uh, as it says in, in Genesis, then a Pharaoh came to power who did not know Joseph and he enslaved the people of Israel. Well, that's why you need an eternal Joseph, isn't it? Someone who never leaves us alone. Can be a savior in the way human beings cannot uh, save us. Here's a, another, an irony, not an Old Testament figure like Joseph and Moses and Adam, but in the Paschal Mysteries, to remember uh, Pilate uh, is portrayed in Matthew as giving the people an out. Uh, will they have Jesus crucified or Barabbas? I'll, I'll, I'll release one to you. Who will you have? And remember, they call out, give us Barabbas. Well, it's the irony of the story. It's how we fall for false messiahs and false idols. And everybody needs to be aware of this. Is Barabbas, Barabbas means son of the father, but Barabbas is a murderous uh, revolutionary and he leads no one to any salvation. And so when you pick the false son of the father, uh, you turn your back on God's will. And so here's another one. Why in the scriptures do the people say, uh, let your blood be upon us and, and on our children? There's an irony there too. And this is the iron, ironic part of the gospel, not just that they asked for Barabbas, but uh, they're willing to take a blood guilt on them because they want Jesus' death. The irony is this, is we are cleansed and saved by the blood of, of Christ. And so even for those people who called for his death, uh, any salvation comes through his blood. And maybe they were all saved by that action. It's just one of those mysteries in the scriptures that you can't know the answer to you just have to wait and see how God makes this all work. But it's why we eat his flesh and drink his blood. We want his blood upon us. For them, it's this, they're not afraid of killing him, even though it is that they are opposing God when they do that. But the irony is, it's through sin that God brings our salvation about. It, it's like through death, he brings us to eternal life. And through our sin and our craziness, he brings salvation to us. Uh, and it's reminding ourselves of really the power of the cross. Pope Benedict points out in his book on Jesus of Nazareth about the Passion narrative. He wrote, when in Matthew's account, the whole people say, his blood be on us and on our children, the Christian will remember that Jesus' blood speaks a different language from the blood of Abel, that was Cain's brother. 
It doesn't cry out for vengeance and punishment. It brings reconciliation. It's not poured out against anyone. It's poured out for many, for all. That's what we say during the, the celebration of the Eucharist. The priest says that. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us. God put Jesus forward as an expiation by his blood. And read of the light of faith, it means that we all stand in need of the purifying power of love, which is his blood. These words are not a curse, but rather redemption, salvation. And only when understood in terms of the theology of the Last Supper and the cross, drawn from the whole of the New Testament, does this verse from Matthew's gospel take on its correct meaning. And that's from Jesus of Nazareth in the Holy Week. I know we all get bothered by the glorification publicly of sin. Uh, but I think what we don't take seriously is the blood of the cross. You know, some of uh, other Christian denominations, they want to change where the goalposts are. And so for you know some of our issues about uh, lesbian and gay issues or transgender issues, abortion is another one, euthanasia, cloning, uh, different genetic kinds of, uh, of uh, therapies, which really do more than deal with, with uh, the problems of being a human being, um, you know, where they try to change how human beings are. These things are frightening to us. You have to remember the grace of God. You don't change where the goalposts are. Sexual relations outside of marriage is a sin. Masturbation is a sin. Birth control is a sin. Uh, Same-sex relationships is sinful. We all stand in need of redemption. Impure thoughts, you know, just go through the whole thing. And then greed, which is probably one of the least confessed sins in America, another grave sin. Pride, people are more comfortable saying that, but any of the sins about appetite, uh, sloth and uh, gluttony, anger and jealousy, just go through all the things that were, have been part of your Lenten experience and repentance from, concern about, and their trust really is in the blood of Christ. There is no lack in God's love. And the question is, is how complete is our response to God? And the only judge of that is God himself. And so this is the place of ironies. We call upon Barabbas, or we want the Jewish people, want God's, uh, the Lord's blood on them. Um, and all of this, it's they choose a false idol, they reject the false king, a false messiah, I should say, and they choose to murder the true one. But the irony of it is the blood of that one that they choose to crucify is the very way that they have their salvation. It's how God uses sin uh, to bring us to himself. And the question is, is whether or not we respond. And so here's the last thing I want to bring up um, before we come to the powerful conclusion of uh, this podcast, because I love the Paschal story. Christianity is absolutely unique. But the place where he was uh, crucified is called Calvary. It's a mountain like uh, Mount Moriah, where Abraham took Isaiah up to sacrifice him again in the book of Genesis. I think it's chapter 11. No, 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 it's, it's after Abraham starts in chapter 12. Um, but you remember, it's like the last, it's the last story about Abraham and his son Isaac. Um, well, Jesus goes up a mountain and his father allows him to be sacrificed. Because if you remember, um, Abraham says to Isaac, uh, when Isaac asks, where's the sacrifice? Abraham says, 
God will provide. And this is a story about how God provides. So why was it called Golgotha? Possibly it was just the place where all the executions occurred. And it may have been in a graveyard or next to a graveyard because the story suggests they didn't have to take Jesus very far to, to um, bury him. And so it could just be uh, that this is the place where the dead were interred. Uh, so lots of skulls there. Or it's a place where Romans uh, executed Roman citizens. Some have said that because a Roman citizen was entitled to be decapi decapitated by the sword. Quick, quick way to go compared to crucifixion or other ways the Romans uh, tried to kill you in horrible, unique, and imaginative ways. Um, but it could just be that uh, that's where they did executions and uh, decapitated their own citizens. Or some have suggested um, that the hill before the city of Jerusalem kind of grew over it because the Calvary now is where the Holy Sepulcher is. And um, you can see where the cross was uh, and where the tomb was, which is close by, because the early Christians faithfully maintained that tradition. Even when the Romans put a um, temple to a, a, one of their gods on the place where Jesus was crucified, which I always think is just the power of God, really doesn't matter how human being, beings try to shut up the gospel. Uh, Jesus just does not stay in the grave. And that's why you shouldn't worry. You should just be faithful and pay attention to what God's doing. But it's been suggested that Mount Calvary was called Golgotha because it looked like a skull. I've seen paintings of it that make it look like a skull. But the simple answer is well, it's where executions occurred or people were decapitated or looked like a skull or it was a graveyard. Nobody really knows what the answer is because the hill has long since disappeared. And there is no description of why it was called Golgotha in the Gospels or ancient literature. So, you know the story well. There's a couple of little things about the new Moses, the new Adam, the new Joseph, the uh, false son of the father, Barabbas, uh, blood guilt, and how it is that we're saved. And the irony that the people who called for his blood were saved by this sacrament that they, this sacrifice that they offered up how God took that instinct and used it. Um, and maybe their descendants have responded to Jesus very strongly, who can say. And then that it was the place of death because we think differently about death because of the resurrection. Because if you think about it, the resurrection ought to be a zombie story coming back from the dead, right? But almost all horror movies are just the gospel inverted. Vampires suck blood, right? And they want you to feed on their blood so they can make you a vampire. But our Savior gives his own body and blood for our salvation. He doesn't make us slaves. He makes us uh, sons of his father. Or zombie movies is where they uh, rise and they want to eat your brains, but not um, the gospel, which is completely opposite. That's why zombies are an inversion um, and... Uh, Instead of eating your brains, he allows you to eat his flesh and blood. That's how you have life. It upends all magical stories because magic is the idea of trying to take control of the spiritual and material powers and, uh, and uh, imposing your own will on them, but not with Jesus. Uh, it's the Father's will. He is not doing his will, but the will of the one who sent him. So it's the anti-magic also. 
You just look at the way the story is told, and it takes all of these bugaboos and and legends and uh, screwed up re religious ideas in the ancient world, even our own world, and it says there is a right way of looking at all of these things, but these are only the things that can be said about God. So let's turn to an end and, uh, and kind of sum up the, the Paschal mystery. Here's how I want to leave leave it with the very song that's on Jesus' lips when he dies. I started out talking about this book that has come out that says Christianity is the cult of the dead and we focus on death. But I think I'm talking to fellow Christians and Catholics and you know that's nonsense. Um, Jesus changed what death means. For non-believers, they can't get beyond death. But we see death as a doorway, a portal into eternal life. And Holy Week is the center in many ways of that belief because it's the center of the liturgical year. How it is we learn to worship God and in worshiping God, we are formed by God, by his story, by the sacraments, by our community, by our prayer, by our moral life. This is, as we engage it week after week, this is what changes us. It's why dropping in and dropping out of the, of the Catholic Church really is uh, like occasionally taking your medicine um, really not much of a strategy for going through life. But when you read Matthew's account of Jesus' final moments of agony, what you hear on Jesus' lips are, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And you could think that it was what, uh, Jesus fearful of losing the Father. But here's how that Psalm, Psalm uh, 22 ends. All who see me scoff at me. They mock me with parted lips and they wag their heads. He relied on the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him if he loves him. Indeed, many dogs surround me. A pack of evildoers closes in upon me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They divide my garments amongst them and for my vesture they cast lots. But you, O Lord, be not far from me. O my help, hasten to aid me. I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, give glory to him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. Not bad for the last words, right? Because at the heart of it is the meaning of salvation. Jesus died, as I hope we all do, with hope in God our Father. So, I hope you have a wonderful Holy Week. This has been another episode of Oral Valley Catholic.